But the, the, the thing I do occasionally take a, a bit of issue with is the argument that the treatments are there already, and the reason they're not working is because of subtypes. That actually, if we just took our, you know, matched our existing treatments correctly to the right people, that that everyone or lots of people could be cured. I mean, I think the response I give to that is, well, show show me the one person you've cured, and then we'll de- then we'll deal with why we're not curing everybody. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. I'm very happy to be here today with Will Sedley. Will is a researcher at Newcastle University in the UK and also a clinician in the field of neurology. Am I saying that correctly, Will? You are, yes. Thanks, Hazel. It's uh, great, great to be here. Great to have you on. So can you maybe just start by telling our audience a bit about your background and what it is you do? Yeah, so I'm I'm a medical graduate, and I spend at least half my working life um, in, uh, working in the neurology department. That's uh, running clinics and dealing with emergencies and referrals on the wards. Um, and then I've been fortunate enough to be able to uh, be conducting research in areas of my interest uh, in parallel with my clinical training ever since I got out of medical school. So I, I've been very interested really in just how the brain works and what goes on in the brain to shape our experience of uh, ourselves and the world, uh, which is what's brought me to tinnitus, which I've been uh, working on for over 10 years now and has uh, remained an enduring interest of mine. Yeah. And can you tell us how that interest first got sparked? Because I imagine some something must have happened that made you think, Okay, tinnitus might be an interesting or worthwhile subject to study. It's a good question, and I'll be totally honest because I think this is relevant. That that point where I realised yes, tinnitus is a really interesting thing to study came considerably after I first made the decision to start working on tinnitus, hmm. uh, which really was pure accident. It's something my research supervisor suggested. Um, I'd been working on very basic science processes, by which I mean trying to understand normal functioning of the brain, but without there being a direct applicability to people or patient groups uh, struggling with any particular symptoms. And he'd suggested working on tinnitus, and within a little while after uh, of beginning that, um, I think I began to realize that actually, I mean, I'd always known this was an important problem um, experienced by many and not uh, not adequately solved, you know, not by a long shot. And what it took me longer to realize, although not that long, was to really understand tinnitus, you've got to understand every level of the sensory and perceptual pathways, you know, right down from the hair cells in the ear that turn sound energy into electrical energy right up to the brain's higher perceptual network and generic but very complex mechanisms for how we really make sense of the world around us uh, and react to things. All right. So if I understand correctly, you kind of just happened on the topic and as you were studying it, got more and more intrigued by it. Yeah. So we started out by testing some really simple hypotheses that had been around at the time saying, oh, well, tinnitus is just directly correlated to this or that one particular process in the brain, and that's that. Then all, all you have to worry about is how that process is generated. And I'd started out trying to replicate or support some of these theories. 
uh, and found that actually the results I was getting were really surprising and a much more complex pattern that could not be so easily explained. And so I'd really started grappling with just how everything could be put together for um, for a number of years, really, and keeping on returning to it in light of the things we were still uh, still learning about the condition and about neuroscience in general, just in terms of how to explain things. Because uh, it's funny, you enter a field of research and you just assume that so much is known and what's what's been written is all correct. And then the more you get into it, you realize the less is actually known confidently. Uh, and the more questions are, uh, are raised, uh, and, and that more questions than answers are often raised. Um, so it was an illuminating experience uh, entering this field. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I guess it applies probably to a lot of fields, but maybe particularly tinnitus because it's still very very young, right? It, it it's not that long ago that people started seriously looking into it. I think you're right there. I think it is a young field. And we may return to you know arguments as to whether it's generated the interest it deserves, given its scale and an impact. So it's a young field, and you know it's maybe not much over two decades that sort of serious attempts to pin down the neuroscience of tinnitus have been made. And it's you know towards the latter half of that that there's been that real exponential expansion in the number of studies done. But I don't think it's just that. I think it is inherently an extremely difficult thing to study because it is a very subjective personal experience. And I think a huge part of it has actually been just checking that we're measuring we're measuring the right thing, that what we're measuring really is correlated to that experience of tinnitus and not so many of the other factors that surround it, whether that's the hearing loss that predisposes you to it. Um, the alterations in attention that follow, and uh, the hyperacusis that very often but not always goes with it. So, so this has been increasingly recognized recently that it's extremely hard to know, even in human studies, where people can tell you very eloquently what they're experiencing, let alone animal studies where they can't tell you anything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for instance, I've only recently understood that uh, when you compare brain imaging pictures of, of people with tinnitus and without that a lot of what you're seeing is in in terms of the big structural differences is due to hearing loss and not tinnitus per se and so a lot of the early imaging studies on tinnitus that were done i think they didn't correct for hearing loss and therefore you can wonder in retrospect how valuable those <laughs> results were that's an incredibly important point you hit upon and it, 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 you do just have to keep that in mind with every study you read um, about tinnitus and where it hasn't been controlled for hearing loss. It's just this big question mark. Is it hearing loss, tinnitus or hyperacusis? Yeah. Um, I mean, to the, to the point that there was a, uh, a review paper by Jose Agamont, who's a huge figure in the field with almost exactly that title, uh, focusing on animal research of, of tinnitus and what we were really measuring. But it it's surprisingly difficult to control for hearing loss. Um, one approach that's been taken, for instance, is, is study entirely people with, with or without tinnitus who have normal hearing, quote unquote. The, the trouble is we know that the pure tone audiogram, which is the standard clinical measure of hearing, is not that sensitive to the various forms of hearing loss that exist. It really just looks at one type of hair cell function. And you can have really quite significant impairments and noise damage that's accumulated over time that isn't measured by this. 
or you can have measurable deficits, then they're just very narrow. They slip between the frequencies of the audiogram or they're, they're higher frequency than the normal audiogram goes to. And, and again, you can just end up measuring correlates of these subtle, subtle changes in hearing unless you're very, very careful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you tell us a bit more about some of those early theories when you came into the field that that later turned out to be false or most or, or just much more complex than was initially thought? I'm not sure I've come across a single theory I would claim to be false as such. But it, yeah, as, as you say, I think um, still an open question or perhaps not not the whole answer. I mean, one one interesting thing was that there's been this big ear or brain question. And way back, people assumed that because you heard the sound in the ear, tinnitus was coming from the ear. And there were a number of attempts made to try and cure tinnitus by severing the auditory nerve surgically that connects the ear to the brain. And the fact that that very often made tinnitus worse was one of the very strong initial pieces of evidence for why tinnitus is generally now understood as a brain condition. If it was just as simple as cutting off this firing that was being passed through to the brain from the ear, that should get rid of it. But it often made it worse. And that's what led to this idea that actually the ear's role was to, in tinnitus, was to have reduced input coming in and that the brain somehow did something a bit like phantom limb pain to overcompensate for that. But actually, it's still not that simple because what then got glossed over was the fact that some people's tinnitus did improve after cutting the auditory nerve. Yeah, I recall that being the case. Yeah. So so not so straightforward and maybe some some inter-individual differences there. And there was interesting work that came out after I started in the field, um, guinea pigs, showing that you can give medication that only acts on the cochlea um, in the ear, not, has no action on the brain. And that if you give that very early after causing tinnitus in animals, it looks like you may be able to get rid of the tinnitus just in those initial weeks. But there may be a critical period where that's the case after which the brain may take over, although some of, some of the work to, to fill in and do those further studies hasn't been done, but that's the suggestion left by it. Yeah, in, in terms of other, other popular theories, there, there was a very popular theory called thalamocortical dysrhythmia, which was popular when I started and, and remains popular, albeit with some refinements. And what, what that had said is you've... Um, if you take away some of the normal input to the thalamus, which is the, the main sort of deep down relay station for sensory and other pathways, so that gets a lot of input coming up from the ear. And if you take some of that input away, it goes from what they call an alpha rhythm, which is eight to 12 cycles of activity per second or bursts to a slower rhythm of more like you know, four to six um, cycles per second. And that then projects up to the auditory cortex, the sort of higher hearing centers, and entrains it in part of it that's lost its input into this abnormal rhythm. And the, and the idea was that the, the interface between the normal bit and the abnormal bit gave you these very fast, what they called gamma oscillations, which are kind of 40, 40 plus cycles per second. And that it, it was the gamma oscillations themselves that triggered this perception. And that's what I set out trying to test. I mean, as you say, with many studies, um, there weren't always the best controls for hearing loss or age or other factors, uh, attention and things, which can all influence these things. Uh, and the approach I took was one that wasn't new, but it was new in this, in this context with these measurements, which was to use residual inhibition, where you play a loud masking sound, and once you stop it, 
the tinnitus takes a while to recover. And the, the theory was, well, look, if this is true, if these gamma oscillations are the basis of tinnitus, then when you suppress tinnitus with residual inhibition, the gamma oscillation should go down, and then they should return to normal as the tinnitus does. And we did see this in some individuals, so, so far no surprises. The real surprise, and by far the stronger finding, was we had a smaller group of people in whom their tinnitus got temporarily louder after the mask is sound, which is something I called residual excitation, but there's otherwise no um, proper term for it than I know. And, it, and again, if these gamma oscillations were the basis for tinnitus, when the tinnitus got louder after the acoustic stimulus, the gamma oscillations should go up. But the weird thing was they went down. Right. Uh, they showed absolutely the opposite trend. And this, this was consistent across every individual who showed this phenomenon at both the individual and the group level. And that, that I found extremely difficult to, to reconcile um, with with the contemporary theory, and it it took me a long time to come up with what I thought was an adequate explanation for the findings. But uh, I may uh, I may refrain from going on too much about that at this point. Well, we can we can briefly get into that. What what was your explanation? I did spend I spent a number of years going over it, and eventually, at the end of my PhD, I just wanted to put all the facts, everything I thought I knew or didn't know or may know about tinnitus, in one place just put it all there, draw it in together and just think, well, how how do all these different bits at different levels of the auditory pathway and everything everything all fit together? What's this, what's this really telling us? And, and part of what came out of that was the idea that there was a fairly newly emerged view. I mean, it's very well established now that you know, not just looking at tinnitus, but in general, these gamma oscillations, what, what they are, what they're indicating is prediction errors. Now, to explain what that means, we have to first accept, which is fairly widely accepted now, that the way perception works is we make a model of the world, whether that's what the, the different bits we hear or we see or what's going on in the environment around us. And we, we update and maintain that model all the time. And that model or those models make predictions about what we're expecting our senses to tell us. And that's much more efficient than just waiting for our senses to keep on telling us every frame, so to speak. And then when our senses do pass the information on, those are compared against what the sensors are telling us are compared against the predictions we already generated. And that's used to update the predictions and to influence what we actually perceive. And one part of that, the prediction error, is the mismatch between what we expected based on our models and what our senses actually told us. And the, the view was that, that, that gamma oscillations are indicating prediction error. And once once we accept that, it frees things up a lot because it means they don't have to simply correlate positively or correlate negatively with tinnitus or be the cause. They're simply a signature that what the signal being passed on from the ear is to some extent not matching with the signal or with the expectation of the hearing part of the brain of what it thinks the meaningful real sounds in the environment are. And that, that led to this idea that actually Perhaps the biggest difference between or what really fundamentally separated people with tinnitus from people equally predisposed with the same hearing loss who didn't have it is whether whether they changed, whether they, their brain changed the predictions of what they were hearing to expect a constant sound. Uh, and the reason they changed that is you've got this noisy signal coming up from the ear, which everybody has, but when you've got hearing loss, that's amplified. But then it's down to higher levels in the brain as to whether they accept this as a real sound, 
and that helps them get rid of those prediction errors by accepting it as real but in doing so accepting something that on another level isn't real and all the consequences of that or whether to keep on having these prediction errors and keep fighting it so to speak and that depending on certain factors the brain can go can go one way or another um but that's that's what had led to this that's what would have led to this idea anyway i think this is a nice segue i guess into you explaining your view theory model of of how tinnitus is is generated i think you were already sort of on the way to explaining how you see this absolutely yeah so to to take a step back because i realize i launched straight into the thick of it what's been thought as of as a basis for tinnitus for a long time and which i can take no credit for is that firstly every pathway in the brain has spontaneous firing of brain cells spontaneous activity that's it's just a thing they do and the auditory system is no different now if you want an analogy here if uh, for the visual system that's a bit more familiar to to everybody whether or not they get tinnitus if you go and stand somewhere completely pitch dark you know there is not a single photon of light in the environment and you concentrate on what you can see you'll see phosphenes as in little flashing dancing random blobs colors and things like that and, and what that is it's not a hallucination that is spontaneous cell firing from the retina being passed on upwards and the auditory system is no different um, and in fact there's some good evidence showing that even if you take people who have no awareness of having tinnitus or ever having had it for more than seconds at a time now and then as everybody does you put them in a soundproof room with no sound around and get them to concentrate on what they can hear more than half will report hearing some high-pitched sound either a pure tone or a narrowband noise like you know like any of us who get tinnitus are familiar with but quieter and only there in very quiet conditions so in a, in a sense the that spontaneous cell firing in the, the the cochlea or the auditory nerve pathway is you know it's it's there for everybody like it is in the visual system it's normal it's it's normal so to an extent we have to see tinnitus as the norm what's abnormal is when it gets particularly prominent and starts to declare itself and just detract from other things even in the presence of everyday sounds and background noise so it's the extent not the presence per se could we say that for people who don't have tinnitus that that spontaneous firing from nerves in the uh, you know in the auditory pathway is somehow filtered out of the conscious experience. I think that is exactly it. So at some point, the brain has to decide what what to do with this uh, with this information, um, with this cell firing, and there's two ways it can go. It can it can accept it as a real perceptual entity as a real thing in the environment a real sound in this case or or it can ignore it as noise and noise as in random activity that doesn't carry a meaning in the sort of information theory sense and if it ignores it as noise all it goes on and perceives is either silence if there's nothing else going on or whatever other sounds are going on in the environment so what we would argue is actually that the signal is this what I would call the tinnitus precursor, this random firing, is there in everybody. And normally it is ignored as noise because it's random. It doesn't it doesn't correlate with anything else. There's no prior experience of it. There's a, a large number of cues inherent in it that tell the brain it's not important. Right. 
to clarify, when you say ignore, you don't mean like consciously ignore, but this happens as a, at a subconscious, involuntary level. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of this taking place before anything reaches conscious attention. So conscious ignoring is more like habituation, which is a whole other matter, although we, we might draw parallels, but it's, it is largely separate. So then, you know, in terms of things that predispose people to tinnitus, Again, this is nothing I can take credit for, but if you if you damage the input to certain nerve pathways from the ear by damaging the ear or the auditory nerve, then through homeostasis, the the cells that are fed by those, they like to maintain the same overall firing rate. That's how much they fire in response to sounds they hear and spontaneous firing rate. And because they've been deprived of a lot of their input, that sort of response gain or volume is turned up to preserve the same firing rate. And what happens is most of that becomes spontaneous firing now. And that's well documented. If you damage someone's hearing, a human or an animal, spontaneous firing rates go up significantly. Um, and not only that, but how, how synchronous the firing is across different nerve cells again goes up. Uh, and that's important that if if you have a lot of nerve cells all saying the same thing at the same time, they're much more impactful and are much more likely to affect ongoing brain processes than if they all say fire and say things at different times. So again, that's how someone's predisposed. But you can have two people with the same hearing loss, um, one of whom gets tinnitus and one of whom doesn't. And and what I've argued is the key step is this, it's this, um, it's whether it gets accepted as a sound source. Uh, and therefore a model and a prediction and everything corresponding to it is set up, which suddenly correspond with the activity, and then the whole system makes sense and you perceive it, or whether whether that part of the system continues to ignore it as noise. So it's not it's not just the hearing loss in that activity itself, but it's these other factors. And I'd come up with a list of a number of things that might influence this. And the term we use is precision. Um, which is the brain's estimate of how important or reliable a source of information like this tinnitus precursor spontaneous firing signal is. And that's influenced by things like, well, chemical factors, sleep deprivation, stress levels, attention plays a big part. So focusing attention, uh, in, in many views of brain function, focusing attention on a particular sensation is is exactly the same as increasing the precision on it. So there could be a whole host of, of single or interacting factors that are changing all the time and depend on your individual state, where you're focusing your attention, other things that are going on. And that what needs to happen for tinnitus to occur, I think, is that the together these give that tinnitus precursor signal enough precision that it, get, it, uh, it gets brought over that threshold where it gets accepted as a real sound source, a real sound entity, and you hear it. And after that, it's only a matter of time before those, that sort of learning of it, that acceptance, that forming a prediction and a model to go with it becomes persistent. Once you've recognized it once, it's very hard, it's very hard to unlearn something, to forget it, or to, to no longer recognize it. Um, the example I use, there's a, I know this is a podcast, so we can't quite illustrate it, but there's uh, there's a very famous picture, which is a load of black dots on a white background. Um, and they just look like random dots at first. But if you look at it for long enough, at some point, you realize it's a Dalmatian dog sniffing at the base of a tree. And once you've seen it, that pattern in it, you can't get rid of that. It doesn't matter how many years go by and you, sh you see that picture again, you'll see it straight away. 
And, and I think there's something similar with tinnitus that once you've seen the pattern and the meaning, again, totally subconsciously before anything you have any choice over kicks in, once you've seen that meaning and the pattern in the random firing, then you can't really shake it unless you get unless you are well unless you get rid of the random firing or suppress it enough that it goes back below the threshold um or you have enough competing noises or, or sound sources or unless you were able to find a way to see how that learning process were actually maintained in the brain which would be a very subtle thing that's to do with particular connections between multiple centers and, and disrupt that so actually get you know getting rid of tinnitus once it's established um it's not to say it's impossible but it's a huge challenge yeah um i th i think we want to get back to that later for sure but to maybe make an attempt to very crudely summarize your model so can we say that someone with chronic tinnitus their brain has learned to predict the tinnitus signal and because there's this prediction or expectation to hear the tinnitus. That is why you continue to hear it. Yes, I think absolutely. Um, the prediction and the expectation is there, and there's still the spontaneous firing in the auditory pathway that corresponds with it. So in, it's enough. The prediction is enough to keep hearing it, and then that um, and that activity is enough to keep on reinforcing or not challenging the prediction. And so you've talked a little bit already about, you know, that there's many factors that could go into sort of triggering this kind of prediction. Can you talk a bit more about that? And, and can you also explain whether you are saying that the brains of someone with tinnitus are innately predisposed to having this prediction or is it more like environmental factors changes that cause the brain to start to predict the tinnitus signal true no it's a good point and i and i think there's two there's two things here because i what of i'm arguing is the the initiating event is actually getting the precision of this spontaneous firing in the pathway in the auditory pathway the tinnitus precursor it's getting the precision high enough to get it noticed and then there's the sort of accepting it as a default state or default prediction so that there may be different factors that influence the two things. And I wasn't initially making any claims about genetic traits, although it would it would always kind of surprise me if there were no genetic and individual traits here because individual genetics affect so much. Um, but I would say on, on an aside that more recently there has been some very nice work in the genetics of tinnitus coming out and there does there does seem to be a sin it's not that it's a sort of hereditary condition but there does seem to be a significant genetic element in that if you've got family members with tinnitus you are more likely to do, develop it it's always a little hard to tell and see through how much of that is explained through genetic susceptibility to, susceptibility to hearing loss versus other factors but there does seem to be a significant genetic component given that a lot of the factors that i think will determine whether you you know when and whether you get tinnitus relate to your you know to state to your particular state of mind and physiology and everything at the time i think there's likely to be you know genetic and personal elements to this and then a large part being particular circumstances just at the time on the day that these may fluctuate a lot from time to time 
and you've only got to be unlucky and get over that threshold once for long enough for the you know for the for the tinnitus to be to be learned but you know pe- anecdotally people you, i mean you may get tinnitus at the same time as the hearing loss was caused but very the usual scenario is it's a gradual onset hearing loss and then people will say either the tinnitus came out of the blue or it it appeared during a time of great stress or difficulty or when physical illness was happening. Sometimes it's other things, it's very innocuous things. So I, I saw somebody who had a hearing test, just a routine screening hearing test, and that involves having to listen out very hard for quiet sounds in a quiet environment. And the tinnitus just emerged during that and never went away again. Um, I, d- I don't know whether you've, uh, whether you've got people who uh, report similar things. Uh, no, that seems quite a rare case, but on the other hand, it doesn't entirely surprise me, and it, it does seem to fit with your model for sure. Yeah. On the su- subject of whether people um, with tinnitus have fundamental differences in the way in which they form auditory predictions, there is some interesting work starting to come out about this. Um, so I've got some colleagues based in Salzburg who've looked at the formation of auditory predictions um, in people with tinnitus and people without. And these are very low frequency sounds in the range of normal hearing, well away from the tinnitus. Um, and it's a it's a sort of complex pattern of different pure tones. And there's different structures and rules about how they're related to each other, such that it lends itself very well to people needing to form predictions in order to kind of best Ex- uh, predict and anticipate what's uh, what's coming up. So naturally, people will do that. And then by looking at the exact brain responses, you can see which which frequency of sound is being represented or, or even predicted at any one moment in time. And the the people with tinnitus, if anything, seemed to actually show a stronger or more accurate pattern of brain responses in terms of predicting what were genuinely likely to be. The next upcoming sound, so you know that they'd almost start that were more likely to have started representing the correct upcoming sound before it even started playing, or at the time it started playing, but too soon for the response to that sound to have occurred. So they're anticipating it better in advance than people without tinnitus. So you know you could turn things on their heads and go, well, actually, given that we've all got this sound source there, you know, is is the anomaly, is the worst performing brain actually the one that? That doesn't that doesn't find the tinnitus and doesn't find the doesn't find the pattern there. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. So the brains of people without tinnitus are worse at predicting sounds. I guess it's not uh, necessarily a an advantage that you want to have as a person with tinnitus, but it, it's an interesting way of looking at it. No, I, th- I think there's few people who would want uh, want their tinnitus if given the choice. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it kind of. I think the best case scenario is is something approaching an indifference. But um, yeah, so it's you know these are these are new preliminary findings uh, from a single study. So it's I mentioned this as something you know people beginning to look at this rather than us being able to draw any firm conclusions. But you know I think th- things like this when we're dealing with conditions that are so common we. Do what we do need to, you know, to try and ask ourselves: actually, is the condition itself of an evolutionary advantage, or does the condition arise from other traits that present an evolutionary advantage? Um, so, you know, that, that may it may turn out to be something to this. That's a very interesting question, and I hadn't considered that before. But I could imagine, you know, when we were all living in caves in the Stone Age, and if you're very attuned 
to environmental sounds and pick them up quicker um, or also more attuned to changes if, if a sound is there and it goes away or the other way around, that could be an evolutionary advantage in terms of waking up in time when a predator comes close or, or things like that. It's a good point and that it makes it makes a lot of sense and has a lot of a lot of face validity. Um I'd need to check and couldn't tell you whether whether any such factors have been explored for in tinnitus. I think it's always difficult once the tinnitus is formed to know what's a sort of predisposing trait versus a a reaction or you know some in some way a downstream consequence of the tinnitus but uh, I I like that thought I, I like that thought and that would concord with um I would concord with you know the, the way in which I've been maybe starting to see things. Mm -hmm. So it seems like whatever it is that sets off the tinnitus, it's got to be quite a complex interrelation of of different factors, including you know spontaneous firing in in nerve cells, and then potentially some kind of uh, genetic predisposition. And then whatever uh, environmental factors come in, in terms of injury or disease or stress, those kinds of things. And if that's the case, then you know, because I think a lot of people when they when they get tinnitus, they start googling causes for tinnitus, and you find these lists online of causes. Uh, it's a long list, um, including things like certain medications, head and neck injuries, Meniere's disease, acoustic trauma, emotional stress, temporomandibular joint disorder. Um, but really, we've got to say it's, it's much more complicated than that. And those things might be triggers, but not per se causes. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think we should maybe draw a, a distinction between causes and mechanisms, because causes are what you know what what we'd think about in a kind of medical or clinical setting which are the things that put you at risk for you know the tangible things that put you at risk and then mechanisms is what's actually happening in the brain and i think you know that the mechanisms are inevitably complex but i think we could i think we can take a big step back and and zoom out and actually reduce tinnitus down to a pretty small simple uh, small number of simple elements and i think what you know what we'd say is Tinnitus is your brain picking up on random cell firing in the auditory pathway as if it were a source of sound. Why this happens is either that some combination of that random firing getting amplified and becoming very loud, or the brain tuning into it more, or both. Risk factors wise, I, I tell people all you need to develop tinnitus is generally some amount of hearing loss, which can be anywhere from mild or undetectable uh, upwards. And all these other causes, in my mind, are just things that cause hearing loss. And, you know, yes, they're all worth considering, but they're all, it's almost never the case that any of them are there. So, you know, it, it is, tinnitus is a tendency to hear random cell firing in the auditory pathway as if it were real. The risk factors are hearing loss in anything that causes it, and how it happens is some combination of amplification of that activity and changes in the brain's vigilance or the way it picks up on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a condition or state, not a disease as such, which doesn't detract from its impact in any way. And, and the only thing I'd add on top of that that I think it's relevant to pick up on, aside from considering reversible causes of hearing loss, 
is whether there are pointers towards somatic tinnitus, which are TMJ, or more commonly, cervical extensor muscles at the base of, of your neck, just because there is some evidence that those can respond to successfully targeting those sources of muscle tension, um, which may be around 20% of cases. But other than that, it's deal with hearing and then manage tinnitus in the standard or one of the standard repertoire of ways for managing tinnitus, which we may come on to and I realize are not uh, not satisfactory <laughs> for for most. Right. Okay. I think that's a, that's a very nice summary um, of your model. Could you maybe talk a little bit about other models out there and and you know are they very different to your model and and are these different models mutually exclusive or could they somehow all be true? So can you talk a bit about the other models? Yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive and I think they're complementary. So I think you know it, it could be that multiple ones of these are true and are each part of the story or some apply more than others in other cases. What I was trying to do is come up with a framework as such by which they can all work together and not be contradictory towards each other. But no, it's it's fairly. I, I mean, I, I, it's fairly straightforward. I tend to see things in quite simplistic terms. So you either have something causing excess activity in the ear or the auditory periphery, sending signals through that would be peripheral tinnitus. The next model is the ear's role is to be underactive, send too little input, and therefore the gain is turned up in the central pathway, and it's just overactive. These central gain models. There's a popular model about um, frontostriatal gating whereby there's a or noise cancelling where there's a system that involves the, uh, parts of the prefrontal cortex and basal ganglia this feeds back into deep pathways in the, in the ascending hearing pathway and can, that has a gating role in determining what gets tuned down or filtered out and what gets tuned up yes yeah, so you know where that fits in if if that's the case that's another gating uh, that's another gain model because ultimately all that's do do doing is turning up or down what finally gets through to auditory cortex and then you decide you know do we think that's enough if if a certain amount of input gets to auditory cortex will you hear tinnitus which i've argued i don't think it's enough to explain things in which case you need another mechanism such as um this sort of prediction based models whereby how do you you know how is that actually incorporate processed interpreted and incorporated into perception and this involves some wider brain networks and the the only other real remaining model i'm aware of is then a sort of a it's it's the sort of filling in model or the, the phantom limb type model where um you say well actually a part of the auditory cortex has lost its input that it's just not getting from the ear and that what it's doing is therefore it has to get it from somewhere else, which is either pull it in from neighboring parts of the auditory cortex from frequencies that haven't been damaged or damaged so much, or pull it in from memory. If the hearing's so bad, it's pulled in from memory. Those models, I think, are difficult. I think that's the only one that doesn't fit really neatly with, with the account I've, I've put forward. It is a bit of an alternative. And and uh, you know, then you you have to say, well, well, which which is it? Is there too much activity? too much gain therefore too much comes from the auditory periphery from the, the the ascending pathway and reaches auditory cortex or is there not enough reaching auditory cortex and it has to pull it in in a top-down manner from somewhere else and I, i'm not you you can come up with nuanced ways in which they can be worked together 
the other popular thing I mentioned, a popular model I mentioned was thalamocortical dysrhythmia, which again says that the thalamus, the auditory hearing thalamus below the level of cortex isn't getting enough input. And therefore it goes into this mode where it changes its frequency and paradoxically it gets too little input and that makes it give too much output. So that's another variation on central gain? It's another variation on central gain, exactly. And I think most of tinnitus, you know, most of tinnitus comes down to central gain. If your angle is brain chemistry, you know, too many, too many excitatory chemicals, not enough inhibitory chemicals, again, that that's gain. If if you're interested in synchrony, so how 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 in tune the firing of all your different cells in the auditory pathway across different frequencies are um, again that can be understood as gain because ultimately they all pass their messages on to the same targets and if they all fire at the same time that triggers a much stronger response than if they all fired at different times so again a great deal can come down to gain and I, and I think it's useful to kind of think of a common currency here the way I see it, it's gain, but it's something more, and it's it's how how that signal is processed, not which is influenced by how much gain there is or how strong it is, but also by our predictive mechanisms, by precision, and how how tuned into it, how receptive to it we are, how vigilant we are for sort of new or unfamiliar or potentially threatening sensations. Is this related to a, a comment or claim that you made in your 2016 publication entitled? an integrative tinnitus model based on sensory precision, where you say something like all the other models face a paradox. Can you explain what you meant by that? It is sort of, yeah. Uh, it is very much related to that. And I think what I was trying to solve were two issues um, with that paper, one of which was that the some of the models seemed contradictory to each other. And I was trying to uh, explore whether we could Put them into a framework by which they were no longer complement, uh, no longer contradictory, but complementary or at least non mutually exclusive alternatives. And then the other things were what I highlighted is these paradoxes. For instance, if you were to take central gain as a model, that actually hearing loss seems to be the main thing that changes central gain more so than tinnitus. It's it's actually not that clear whether tinnitus explains it any more of central gain once you've fully taken into account hearing loss and hyperacusis. And given that that will have occurred at the time the hearing loss occurred, and then you get these, you know, you get massive changes due to hearing loss and comparatively smaller changes if they do occur at all due to tinnitus. Well, how does that, how does that really present the whole explanation? If the level of hearing loss isn't the predictor of tinnitus, if the timing of the tinnitus of the hearing loss isn't the predictor of tinnitus, if actually you can go on and develop the tinnitus much later, then again there's something there's something unsolved uh, and unexplained here. I think the other paradox is one I uh, mentioned before with these high, very high frequency, fast gamma oscillations that they seem to. They seem to have different relationships with tinnitus in different settings, or depending on exactly how tinnitus changed. And again, it starts telling you that they're really not the whole story; they're part of the story. So I, th I think it was highlighting things like that that just showed the incompleteness of existing models. Mm -hmm. So one of our tinnitus talk members submitted a question, which has also occurred to me: whether any of these models can be really 
proven to be true with the current brain investigation tools that we have at our disposal, such as MRI and ABR, etc.? It's a really good question because each of these gives you some some sort of indirect measure of brain activity. And then the, the measurable brain activity gives you part of the story of what what is actually going on underneath. I mean, I, I sometimes liken this to we're, we're trying to we're trying to judge or prove the or measure the the content or meaning of a conversation by listening from a few miles away by simply measuring the volume of the conversation. And it's an extremely indirect measure. So what, what you end up having to do is construct, construct theories or models of what you think may be going on underneath, and then use that to sort of model what, what you would anticipate your things like the volume of conversation or things you can measure, the brain responses we can see under different conditions and see if it all matches up. And obviously, you know, the, the arguments are relative or models are relatively weaker when we just take all the existing data we have and say, well, what's the best explanation or the least worst explanation for it? And a bit stronger if we can go, well, yes, I'll do that based on that model. If we run this or that new experiment, then this is what we expect to find. That's a bit stronger if you then confirm that hypothesis. If you can truly sort of understand a system in mathematical terms or computational terms, you can build a computational model, computerized model, and see if you can use that to sort of fully explain tinnitus uh, perception or tinnitus behavior in animals under different conditions. And that's been done for certain levels of the auditory pathway, which are quite well understood. They're just not quite there for the more complex systems involving higher brain centers uh, as well. So I've, I've been trying to do a sort of middle ground thing for now, which is the second scenario saying, well, if, if this is our theory, what else would we expect to find if we run these new experiments? And I've been running some of those new experiments and so far coming up with more or less what we would expect to see given, given the model I'd come up with, albeit you know, there are always going to be other potential explanations. So it's something we have to, you know, you have to continue continue working at but the short answer is no, it is it, it can be done but it, it is it is very difficult to really prove how something's working when it is when it you know it, it is a subjective perceptual entity that's an emergent property of these very you know very wide very detailed brain networks it, it, it is a, it's not impossible it is just a massive massive challenge maybe this is a good transition for you to talk a bit more about your current research or, or, or your plans and what is it you most would like to find out going forward I, I imagine you want to prove your theory to you know to a greater degree of certainty well if if yeah if it's correct um I want I, I want to know what I want to help to discover what's going on whatever that is whether it you know whether it concords with existing theory my own or others or, or is something totally different um you know the, the preferable answer is the correct one but yeah i'd like i'd like to understand tinnitus better and and get at what's going oh, that's a good point in science i guess disproving a theory is of as much value as proving it um yes there is and that you know there's a time to knock things down when they're 
a bit too established and yet not adequate and there's a time to build when you're left saying well where do we go from here and and it's to some extent it's an ongoing cycle of breaking and rebuilding so we we do yeah i I'd, i mean i'd love to make headway with what's going on i'd love to, and i would love to help work towards better treatments for tinnitus so barring any sort of practical or financial constraints what would you most like to research in the coming years i'm really interested in i mean in you know in in tinnitus and related conditions where there are ongoing un, you know unpleasant perceptual unwanted experiences which includes tinnitus and also chronic pain and some other conditions like fibromyalgia and uh, disturbances of sensory processing of which pain can be a part even in the av- absence of tissue damage and I, and i think i think there's a lot of parallels so think with all of these and you know tinnitus as much as ever in an ongoing fashion um try and really i'd like to nail down what it is what it is that's controlling the extent to which sensations are tuned up tuned down um allowed to reach conscious level or not in a way that opens the door to being able to modify that um and tune things down that are too intense or too loud like hyperacusis or you know turn the switch back on things that are there when they shouldn't be like like tinnitus or or ongoing ongoing pain and um i think there's a lot of parallels across the uh, across the different fields because fundamentally the brain isn't going to have different totally different tools redesigned from the ground up from one modality like bodily touch sensation to another like uh, like hearing to another like vision the commonalities are going to be going to be very large here so i'm really kind of looking to try and understand the fundamentals of these systems but in a very clinically relevant way and never losing the focus on on tinnitus here so you will be studying actually these different conditions that are perhaps analogous to tinnitus such as chronic pain you mentioned yeah i mean my, the plan is the plan is to continue to spearhead things with tinnitus i think the research is much more you know particularly mine is much more established in the methods so i i think that for the foreseeable future will remain my primary focus but i'm keen to sort of start to bring bring what we're learning from this um to other conditions subsequently and i th- and i think eat the study of it's one of these things where actually you I think you can often make less progress focusing too narrowly on one thing as opposed to considering the bigger picture when when you're dealing with things that are so similar. So, a few months ago you shared with the Tenet Stoke community and there's there's a thread you can find on on the forum uh for our listeners. You shared with us a research idea which entails different elements but uh, amongst those elements is finding or defining an objective marker of tinnitus. So can you talk a bit more about that? So what is currently the closest thing we have to an objective measure and why is it so important to have a reliable objective measure of of tinnitus? Yeah, it's a good question and the first thing I'd say is nothing is intended to become a diagnostic test because we're fortunate, you know, anyone working with people with tinnitus has a very reliable measure which is more reliable than any medical test will be and that is simply asking the person what what are you what are you hearing and or even just do you have tinnitus there is i think for research points of view it's useful to have objective measures particularly objective measures that are tied to or linked to particular parts of the mechanisms of a condition um so that if you're testing 
treatments, for instance, you can tell not only that someone says their symptoms are better, but also that you you can see some additional line of evidence that you're modifying the related brain processes, assuming the treatment works on those processes. So that's a sort of desirable thing. It's not essential, and you can absolutely get by just you know asking people if their symptoms are better. And if you conduct your studies properly and have a good placebo group, then you'll you'll still see your effects. But nonetheless, it has still been a bit of a barrier for the drug companies uh, and enticing them to invest in in tinnitus research. I I think the bigger issue is for animal studies, where it is, you know, there's so much more we can learn about brain mechanisms. There's things we can do in animal studies, not that I do them myself, but I recognize their importance in animal studies that we can't in, in humans, not ethically and not feasibly. And for that, it is really important to know, is your animal hearing tinnitus or not? Because otherwise you may be misled into studying the wrong condition and studying hearing loss or hyperacusis or, or you know, Im- impaired, you know, other aspects of impaired sound processing that, that follow what you, what you do to the animals. And there, there are measures of tinnitus in animals, and these are ingenious, you know, some brilliant creative minds have gone into producing these. And by and large, they fall into two categories. You either train an animal to do something or not do something, a particular behavior in the presence of noise. And then you do whatever you think may cause the tinnitus and you see how it behaves, whether it's behaving like there's a noise there or it is or there isn't. Or you can you can look at the startle response, sort of involuntary responses that don't need that prior, very laborious training. That's the 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 main one is this gap pre-pulse inhibition. So there's something called the acoustic startle response. If there's a very loud sound, it's startling. And for rodents, they um, they actually should visibly twitch and move their ears and things like that. And that can be measured quantitatively. And if you give a warning, an implicit warning that that startling stimulus is about to occur, then there's less of a startle because they're expecting it. And one form that that warning can take is that you can play an, a quiet ongoing narrowband sound of some kind and there can be a short gap uh, in that sound very and very shortly before the startling stimulus or sound and that that diminishes the startle response because they were expecting it however the the line of reasoning goes if you've got tinnitus and it, it will fill in the gap in that sound so you won't hear the gap and therefore you won't be any less startled than you would have done without the gap and there's a way you can compare with gap, without gap, different frequencies and things, and come up with this index of whether the animal has tinnitus. And there's a number of controversies here. And there's also the fact that this is not clearly replicable in humans, so that there's no validation against any gold standard for any of these measures. You can kind of you can show that some animals will behave as in the manner that you think they should behave if they have tinnitus. And that that is more likely to occur after you damage their hearing or not overexpose them to noise. But there's no gold standard at which you can go, well, actually, this is the accuracy. This is this is not. So at the moment, we have this big unknown over how accurate the animal models are. They may be brilliant. They may be very much misleading us. And we're, it's very hard to be sure. So what I was, what I'm very interested in is, can we come up with an objective market in humans that then the animal research community could use equally in animals. And if it can be validated to be very accurate in humans, they could either use that as a test for tinnitus in animals or even just use it to validate the existing models, whichever proves to be more more convenient. 
And once you have that and you absolutely know which animals are experiencing tinnitus, then actually the results of, you know, one can put a lot more stock in the accuracy of the results of any of the studies derived from those methods, really. So it, it is, again, a bit of a limiting factor on these lines of research. Um, and, you know, again, if, if your measure doesn't accurately reflect tinnitus but something else, and then you come up with a medication that you give to animals and it normalizes it, you may be treating something other than tinnitus. And that would be one of the several possible reasons that treatments that work in animals often don't seem to work in humans. So it, it is really important uh, to know, particularly in animals, what, what it is we're actually studying. So what objective measure are you proposing? Because I think it is related to your prediction model, correct? It, it is ab absolutely, yeah. So the, the idea is we, now we can't measure predictions themselves in the brain. These are just at a level of subtlety. They're you know, down to connections between large numbers of cells, not any activity we can observe. But what we can make use of is that there are well-characterized brain responses, um, even ones you can measure with EEG, for instance, that indicate the violation of predictions. And the more strongly a prediction has been violated, the bigger this brain response. So with the right, the right different conditions that you're measuring these um, prediction violation responses across, you can start to work backwards and say, well, actually it's telling us this or that about, about the predictions. So what, what I'm focusing on is, again, my theory that people with tinnitus have an ongoing prediction of a tinnitus-like sound, a sort of quiet ongoing sound at a particular frequency. And, and the idea was that, that that prediction may not necessarily only act on the firing, this spontaneous firing that causes the tinnitus itself, but may act on other sounds of similar frequencies played. And it's quite a simple design, what, what we've been using. You just play a series of beeps at the tinnitus frequency or close to it at a particular intensity that's generally louder than the tinnitus. And then every so often they switch and they, they switch and they go louder in intensity and they plays the louder ones for a while. And then every so often there's a switch back to the, to the quieter ones and it just alternates every, at random intervals between loud and quiet. And every time there's a switch, this so-called deviant response, because the, there's a deviation of the, the intensity or the loudness of the sound, that triggers a large brain response where there's been this perceptual change. What I'd hypothesized is that actually because in one case when the sound's getting louder, it's getting less like the tinnitus, and in the other, the other kind of deviant, it's getting quieter and getting more like the tinnitus, we should see an asymmetry here, that the ones getting less like the tinnitus should give you a much bigger mismatch or deviant response because they're more unexpected, and the ones that get more like the tinnitus should actually have been much more expected. And, and so what we expect is, is very much that asymm asymmetry, that sounds getting a bit louder should give you a much larger response than the ones getting quieter. And this is after correcting for straightforward things, just like the responses to the different sound loudnesses themselves. Uh, and, and that's what we've seen um, in, the, in the initial studies, um, in, the, in the first few, few studies. So it's, it's encouraging. It's, it seems to support the hypothesis and potentially have potentially should be a strong enough effect to actually help tell you whether and not only a group of people but whether an individual has tinnitus or not so there's further further work ongoing that uh, that kate my phd student is doing to replicate this to refine to refine the methods try and make the effect as strong as they can 
uh, and run some additional control experiments to be sure that we are really, you know, the reason for these effects really is the reason we think, because obviously, as I mentioned, there can be other explanations we haven't thought of. So what level of accuracy have you been able to achieve in terms of this test being able to determine does someone have tinnitus or not? Yeah, so we so we look at something called the the ROC or receiver operator characteristic curve, which is something you make for any diagnostic test and it and it it looks at all the different positions you can put your your cutoff point, your threshold for what you say is a, a positive or a negative test. Um, so at one end, you could say you could set a very low threshold, and so you would detect everybody with tinnitus because they'd all be over that threshold. But you'd also probably detect everybody without tinnitus. So that's what you'd call a test that's it's sensitive because it picks up everyone, but it's not very specific. So even if you test positive, it doesn't mean you have that condition. And at the other end, you could set the threshold very high, so you you detected almost nobody with tinnitus, but you were fairly confident that if they tested positive, they would have it. And you can draw a graph of every different place you can put your cutoff. You can look at the area under the curve of that graph. And a perfect test has an area under the curve of one, meaning it perfectly discriminates everybody. And a useless test, it's 50%, so it's no better than chance. So it's a 0.5 area. And we were up to about 0.74, if I recall correctly. So about halfway in between, which is what gets classed as fair diagnostic accuracy. Uh, not quite good and not excellent, but still, still showing some significant value. We'll have to see what that comes out as for the replication study and then, and then with, with further, um, further refinements of the methods. Uh, we'll have to wait a little bit, a uh, little bit longer due to the uh, global pandemic uh, for for when we get those next results. Of course, yeah, that's been affecting many, many researchers. And does a refinement of this objective measure also help you to refine your model of the mechanisms, underlying mechanisms of tinnitus? I think there's two ways in which we're sort of trying to move things forward. So there's refining it just to make it just to give you as clear a result as possible, which would make it a more useful test, but not not shed any more light on the basis, you know, the actual mechanisms behind it or, or proving models. And then the other thing we're looking at doing is slightly changing the methods and, and um, exploring slightly different conditions again to, to just try and approach testing that hypothesis from slightly different angles and see if it holds up to to you know, to additional conditions and relaxing some of the assumptions we've made. So it's it's a little bit of both, probably with separate experiments. And I understand you're also working or planning to work on some type of sound therapy. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's that's something um, something we'll hope hope to hope to start testing fairly soon. There's still a little bit more work for the the infrastructure to be done. Um, now, there's obviously been a lot of sound therapies tested in tinnitus before, most of which haven't worked, and the remainder may work a bit. It's not that uh, not that clear. There are some that seem to work slightly, but uh, yeah, one has to bear in mind that when you approach these, just from history uh, of how they've gone before, there's a high chance that it that it doesn't work. But it, it is taking a new approach. Um, it's not something that's been tested before, and it is again focusing on this concept of precision which is the the cue to how relevant or how important that activity in the auditory pathway that gives rise to tinnitus is. Um, and we've said that there's too much too much synchrony associated with tinnitus and probably hearing loss. The cells are firing 
in the same rhythms at the same time, and that makes their message much more powerful and harder to ignore. And, and you can look at this two ways, either as breaking up synchrony or aiming to break up or reduce precision. Um, but it's, it's, all, it's all down to sounds. We've, we've got these sounds and how the different, the relationship between the firing rates will cause in different frequency channels at different times and how these are varied. Again, to try and, to try and break up any systematic relationships between them and kind of teach the the cells in each uh, in each frequency channel to be firing at different times and not correlate with each other so that's the idea it's uh anything else i were to say on the subject would probably just be excessive jargon at the moment all right what what are you hoping for uh ideally what would be the ideal outcome uh, of that therapy the ideal outcome would be that people's tinnitus gets quieter so that so just to be clear this is not intended it is not sound therapy aiming to promote coping and habituation. This is aiming to suppress the loudness of tinnitus. I think if it has any effect there, then that's great. And, you know, that really gives us something to run with. It may, it may be that it doesn't. I mean, I should say I've got, a, I've got three different slight variations on the theme to test. So there's always a chance that, that at least one of them does. But I, I really don't want to promise too much and risk creating false hopes. Because as I say, there have been a lot of sound therapies tried. Uh, this is just one more to test. But, you know, if it works, the idea is to make this widely available. So, you know, once this is up and running, I don't want anyone to be too bothered about whether they get into initial studies or not, because if it works, there's going to be more and it's going to be widely available. So don't, no one, no one's going to miss the boat as such. Okay, good to know. Where do you stand on the issue of, of subtyping? Because I've, it's in recent years, more and more researchers have started saying, that if and when we find a cure, it will actually be different cures for different patient groups because tinnitus is such a heterogeneous condition and you can't compare one type of tinnitus with the other. Would you agree with that? Yeah, this I mean this is a this is a long-standing raging debate. There is clearly at a minimum heterogeneity. So tinnitus does vary. Well, to some extent in its causes, certainly in the perceptual features and its characteristics. So does that mean that there's just a smooth spectrum across all these different factors? There's one condition that can just occupy different points, or are there distinct subtypes that are just fundamentally different through all their mechanisms? I couldn't tell you anything authoritative on the subject. My, my feeling is that I, I'm quite content with heterogeneity rather than subtypes, unless compelling evidence comes along that there really are distinct subtypes that are just fundamentally separable throughout all levels of the pathway. I can believe a sort of single middle common pathway, there's something perhaps again to the model I'd put forward in 2016 that is common to all tinnitus. And then when you move a bit upstream from there in the causes, different balances of causes, different combinations, and then again, moving downstream, slightly different characteristics and reactions. I, I suppose whether you need different treatments for different ones, were that the case, it depends on are you intervening with that core bit of the mechanism that's common to all, or are you are you intervening with something a bit further out that is just addressing one of many potential causes? Right, something more peripheral, perhaps like a somatic tinnitus, where you know you can resolve it by correcting a, a jaw issue or something. Uh, quite, yeah, yeah. That I think that would be a very that would be a very good example, which might not work in someone where there is there isn't any somatic uh, influence there. So, I think that's a very open question. 
um, whether we'd need one or one or many treatments. It really depends what those treatments are going to be. And yeah, subtyping versus heterogeneity, what watch this space really. It's a very difficult thing to prove because actually most studies will only show sort of group level differences and it can become quite artificial how you put your groups together. So it's it's a tricky thing to a tricky thing to to deal with. Yeah, I haven't heard one sort of authoritative concept of what the subtype categories then should be. No, no. And every time I meet it, every time I'm at any venue where this is being discussed, I sort of stick my head above the parapet and go, well, I'm not persuaded that subtypes exist. I'd like to see some evidence. And I, I have yet for this to be met with anyone claiming that there is solid evidence. So we, I think we just don't know. Um, I'm just sharing a personal viewpoint. But the, the, the thing I do occasionally take a, a bit of issue with is the argument that the treatments are there already and the reason they're not working is because of subtypes that actually if we just took our you know matched our existing treatments correctly to the right people that that everyone or lots of people could be cured i mean i think the response i give to that is well show show me the one person you've cured and then we'll then we'll deal with why we're not curing everybody that's a good one (laughs) yeah yeah because those cases are few and far between and we see it on the tinnitus talk forum obviously i don't have hard statistics but you know i feel like we would see a lot more people there saying okay my tinnitus completely went away after trying this or that and it just doesn't happen that often maybe last question in terms of cures and and treatments would you view acute tinnitus and chronic tinnitus as two separate conditions that would require different uh treatments and and do you believe it should be possible theoretically to treat or cure tinnitus regardless of how long someone has had it i see them as the same condition but there may be a f- there may be some differences in the, in the acute and chronic states and, and the re- i mean the reason i see them as the same condition is there's quite compelling evidence now that by the time tinnitus has been there for 4 weeks unfortunately unless there's a reversible cause of hearing loss that was that it happened at the onset like loud noise exposure or an ear infection you've only got about a 10% chance of it disappearing by 6 months and if it's there by 6 months it's likely to continue long term which is not to say anyone newly developing tinnitus to be put off obviously there's huge there are naturally huge improvements for most people in awareness and suffering and distress and the impact of tinnitus but i i see i'm seeing them as the same condition now now i do think that it's probable that the, that there's a shift in terms of. I mean, I, I think probably there's your what I'd call precipitating mechanisms um, that actually cause the tinnitus to occur to begin with, and these are things that impact on sensory precision and get it over that threshold. And then maybe perpetuating mechanisms that are to do with learning the tinnitus prediction and pattern that maybe come in over time. I think it might be hard to draw an absolute hard distinction. What you've probably got is more of one at the beginning and more of the other later on uh, and then there is evidence showing that there there are probably some brain network changes that continue to happen even after years with tinnitus how critical they are to maintaining it i don't i don't know it's uh, it's, it's hard to say i i think we're all working you know everyone's working towards trying to come up with eventually ways of getting rid of tinnitus regardless of its stage and i don't see anything that should make it fundamentally impossible to get rid of 
that said, I think it's highly likely that if there are things that help suppress tinnitus, that they'll be more effective in the early stages. It, and it would be a bit weird if it wasn't. Um, certainly, if you look at the pain literature, there's overwhelming evidence for the benefit of painkillers and neuropathic pain agents for acute pain. For chronic pain, uh, the evidence is really not so not so compelling. They're, they're still used. But actually, you know, I've got a number of colleagues in neurology who spend a lot of time just trying to get people off long-term you know, side effect laden painkillers for ongoing pain that that isn't responding to them. Um, and you know, when they manage it, the person is no worse with their pain, but they're better with all their other side effects. So I think I, you know, I think it's a bit of both. I think if if any of our existing drugs do work on tinnitus, they're probably more likely to be effective earlier on. But then I've also said at the same time, I don't think any of the existing drugs we have are going to be the the ultimate tinnitus cure, which we're still still working towards. So, Will, I'm I'm mindful of having already taken quite a bit of your time on a, on a Sunday morning. Maybe we can uh, wrap up the discussion by talking a little bit still about collaboration uh, within the research field with patients and 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 funding issues and such. How do you see your work in relation to the overall tinnitus research community? Do you think there's enough? collaboration there are there more synergies that could be leveraged yeah i mean i mean there's great things like the tri tinnitus research initiative you know really established structures to get networks of researchers working together with collaborations common methods and and all of that so i i mean i think i'm sure that as with everything there's always more that can be done but i i think there's been really you know really positive things put in place to facilitate this and you know i i, I speak with other people in other other centers across the tinnitus field to you know to share ideas or um share methods and things so i think it's all there i think i don't think there's much of you know people being you know too too cagey with their ideas and methods and not sharing them to, so as so as to hold things back particularly i mean i can see that if people are sort of in the middle of a clinical trial or something They'll they'll keep their cards close to their chest just while that's running and that. But it's, you know, aside from from those things, I mean, you know, more collaboration is always better. And I I think uh, we we don't so much need it to be able to run big studies because actually because tinnitus is so common, there are so many people with it. It's not like some of these rare medical conditions where you need huge international trials just to get sufficient numbers. And, and actually, people with tinnitus are just. Or, you know, it's quite inspiring how incredibly enthusiastic about taking part in research that you know everyone I've met seems to be with with um, with tinnitus really. So you know, yeah, I think collaboration all and talking, sharing of all of these things is is all very is all very important. You know, will will that ultimately be what what gives us the breakthroughs? Who who, who knows? I think there's got to be enough collaborative thoughts so that people are sort of end up on the same page about things and not coming into conflict too much and then there has to be enough independent thoughts so people don't get sucked into the trap of accepting things as definitely true that aren't actually true or you know just just following accepted wisdom too much i i probably collaborate less than i should and work a bit too independently um well yeah well whether that's whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or which side of the optimal i'm on i'm, I'm not sure but uh, i I probably uh, probably tend tend to uh, try and accept accept nothing as given and pursue my own own ideas. Let's talk a bit also about collaboration with patients or, or people who have tinnitus. 
So you actually came to us a few months ago seeking input from the Tinnitus Talk community for your new research idea. Why was that important to you? I think it's always important because, you know, as I think as researchers, we can have an idea about what we think is important. But actually, at the end of the day, we are fueled by public money, donated money, the generosity of time and effort of everybody who chooses to volunteer in research and and for the benefit of people living with a, a particular condition. And and I think I think a big part of it was wanting to it's really wanting to check that actually people living with tinnitus thought that this was a worthwhile thing to be doing, was a worthwhile approach to take. I, I was aware that it in my mind to really understand the bits I'm interested in of tinnitus and think will make the difference. Uh, one needs to take a step back into basic science to an extent, because there's parts of just normal functioning that are not sufficiently understood, as well as a little bit of sidestep, as I was saying, into related conditions. So again, part of it sort of checking that people wouldn't feel, would still think this was worthwhile, wouldn't feel shortchanged at, 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 widening, at widening the focus there. Uh, and then there's more sort of technical, pragmatic manners about what it's like to be involved in the research, the methodologies, the methodologies used. Actually, just understanding the rationale for it. You know, not it's not all about just the distant delivering of a cure, but the knowledge gained and what we can be reporting back to people. And hey, you know, we're we're not there yet, but we've found this or we've found that. So yeah, I think it, I think it was a number of approaches. And then, I, in fact, you know, pe- th- these are people who think a lot about tinnitus and care a lot about tinnitus and i think it's important to value everybody's thoughts because everybody can have good ideas and it's often only when you sort of present things in a more open forum you start opening yourself to just other ideas and things you wouldn't have considered otherwise yeah it's um we did a poll a year or so ago which a few hundred people answered asking them which stage of the research would you most like to see more patient involvement you know so there's the initial the research ideas or the research agenda there's then research design then the uh, clinical trials then data analysis and communication of outcomes etc so you've got the whole all the phases of the of the research there and overwhelmingly people wanted to be involved earlier on so actually at the very conception of you know new research ideas and i thought that was a really interesting and telling outcome and i think therefore all the more we appreciated you know you you coming um to us with a new idea and asking for for input because what we see all too often is that we that patients do get involved or consulted but at a time moment when basically the whole plan is already set in stone and there's not really any room for further influence there. That's what happens when we get invited to research consortiums like TINACT and ESIT. Not that we don't value being a part of that, there is definitely value in that, but we didn't get to influence the the research agendas there. So that that's, I think, uh, we'd like to see more of that so i think you're setting a good trend hopefully in that regard good hopefully yeah no i think i think that's i think that's how it should be you just there's much more room to influence things if if you're involved earlier is there anything else that we as a patient community could 
do to influence the research agenda you think i think it's really difficult i think the i think the biggest two things are, are joining the campaign for increased funding and you know dedicated funding for research or clinical care for tinnitus which is going on and the other side to things is is the harder one which is getting more people interested in it which is it's a sort of public public awareness you know gradually fueling an increased public awareness of the existence of tinnitus the and the, the impact and and the the huge the huge challenge uh the huge challenge in in tackling it yeah yeah it's definitely uh, a challenge <laughs> um we'll keep pushing for sure for for that funding and increased awareness and attention Will, I want to thank you so much for this very insightful discussion. Again, sacrificing half your free Sunday. Um, thank you so much. That's quite all right. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's Monday, by the way. Oh, it's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that funny the things lockdown does to one. <laughs> I said that I said Sunday before, didn't I? Yeah. yeah so I took um, I took the day off from my day job. So in my mind, it's Sunday. Yeah. Oh, I, I do this all the time. Yeah. 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 And you and you have a regular day off, I think, for your family on Monday, correct? Um, more more or less. Yeah. It usually ends up full of things that have to be done. Work anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, then, thanks for nevertheless for sacrificing your time. <laughs> yeah <laughs> no uh, my absolute pleasure thanks for thanks for having me and thanks for a very enjoyable discussion